0: Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning's gospel comes right on the heels of last week's gospel reading, earlier in Matthew, in the same chapter 16. You recall, that's where we last saw Peter, and he was riding high, practically on the clouds. Why? Well, he had just received the praise of the highest order from his beloved master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that was the exact proclamation by Peter that Jesus rewarded with his joyous praise. Jesus had said to him on the heels of Peter's good confession, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it. Then in so many words... Jesus adds that it is upon this confession, this revelation from his father, on which that he will build his church. Peter must have been just beaming. That was last week. This week, that beaming takes a dark turn. And real quick, what a difference a week makes of course, in real time, as it all originally went down back then, as Matthew recorded it, it wasn't seven days make a week later. It wasn't that kind of later, no. It was more like seven seconds later for Peter to go from, hey, I'm walking on water here, to save me, Lord, lest I drown, to mix Matthew's stories of Peter. But this time around, it was more like, save me, Lord, from being the devil's mouthpiece. But those are the ups and the downs in the real life of Peter, the volatile disciple. And it's Peter's ups and downs that are also the kinds we can identify with, all we today who claim to walk with Christ. I mean, one minute we may be patting ourselves on the back for witnessing to our faith or completing successfully another daily devotion, and then within the next seven seconds we are... Fill in the blank, taking God's name in vain, yelling at our kids or our spouse, speeding on the freeway, getting drunk, leading a sexually immoral lifestyle in one way or the other. We are essentially, by our own words and actions, quite capable of denying the same Christ whom Peter would later deny. The next thing you know, our seven seconds in the wrong direction turns into seven months hiatus from an active faith walk following Christ by going to his church, being with fellow believers, where we also regularly receive his nourishing word and sacrament. It's not just Peter's life that goes up and down in this way. It's an accurate description of our spiritual journey as well. And it takes another revelation, or we call it illumination by the Holy Spirit who brings us once again to our senses and moves us to repent. Thanks be to our merciful God. He not only reveals our sin to us, but he reveals again and again his son to us and draws us again to Christ who is mighty to save. He saves us, he saves Peter, he saves the whole world in this way. But our merciful God has a funny way of revealing his might doesn't he? And that's what Jesus was trying to impress upon his 12 disciples, and to Peter in particular, the same Peter who got right the decisive $10,000 question that Jesus had asked them. Who do you say that I am? Like I said, Peter got the right answer, but he didn't show his work. He didn't arrive at that answer based on Sound understanding. And it seems Peter was guilty of the very same glory blindness that essentially the whole nation of Israel had suffered from. Jesus once described the whole scenario as the blind leading the blind. As we now further dissect this passage today, we will discover how Peter manages to be both brilliant and blind at the very same time a paradoxical pairing to which we ourselves are only too susceptible. Yes, it seems that we too suffer from glory blindness from time to time. It's quite contagious. Our transition verse is from verse 20, and I deliberately left that in from last week because a lot of people are puzzled by that verse when it says, he, Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And people naturally wonder, doesn't that contradict what Matthew writes at the end of his gospel? Namely, that his disciples go into all the world and tell everyone that Jesus is the Christ. Well, that is the message, for sure, no doubt. And we should indeed ring that message out, that wonderfully good news where People need to hear that their sins are indeed forgiven and that the same Jesus lives and reigns today and is coming back one day in glory to claim his own and to justly judge the whole earth. That's pretty much the Great Commission, isn't it? Found right there in Matthew 28. So we will get there. But for, before we get that message out, Jesus wants to be sure that we get the message Right. The church seeks to catechize you on the proper understanding of both who Jesus is and what is the great work he has done for you and me and for the entire world. Peter got halfway there, though. That is, he pointed to the right person who was the Christ. He got that right. But we don't rest with people only making it halfway to heaven. Peter got the right wording, but he was lacking in the right understanding. In other words, that key word Christ, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That key word, even Peter was at a loss to rightly explain. Worse, at least at first, Peter didn't want to listen either to Jesus' explanation. Peter wasn't alone. Like every other person of Jewish descent in first century Palestine, Peter too had preconceived notions as to who the Messiah would be, and how he would establish his messianic kingdom. And the whole picture in their minds was an earthbound situation, earthbound in power, earthbound in appearance. It was all earthbound in pomp and circumstance. Israel at that time was an occupied vassal nation of Rome. So their collective expectation of the Christ was one who would bear his arm in even greater might than the might of Rome itself their nationalistic Christ figure were only a crown of glory and not a crown of thorns they were to switch it up too earthly minded to be of any heavenly good after all what good is a suffering savior a naked bleeding humiliating savior What good is a dead savior hanging on a criminal's cross? That show of weakness only further serves to humiliate the national uh, pride that was already injured. Far from being the one that vanquished Jews, far from being that one that they could claim as their own, this despised and rejected Messiah wannabe as the Jews saw Jesus, he was in fact only rubbing salt in their wounds. But Jesus needs his disciples to be both salt and light and light that illumines understanding. So here in verse 22, Peter, having just heard his master's detailed game plan to enter Jerusalem to die and rise again the third day, Peter, not so rightly this time, speaks for the whole nation of Israel when he rebukes the Christ saying, far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you to die. This shall never happen to you. Oops, there it is. Never say never to the Son of the living God. When people, be they prophets or paupers, whenever they presume to question and not just query God or not just petition him, say, for needful wisdom or something like that, whenever people would challenge God's judgment and ways, things did not go well for them. Consider Job, right? Jonah. Even Moses slipped up in this department, and he was banned from the promised land, albeit Moses shows up with Elijah in the very next chapter of Matthew on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we know Moses makes it to the eternal promised land, doesn't he? And he's there also with the prophets, including Jeremiah, the so-called weeping prophet. Jeremiah, according to tradition, was one of those prophets Jesus alluded to when he said in Luke's account, I must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following, said Jesus, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Do you detect with me that bit of divine sarcasm there? Jeremiah, like ourselves, needed that encouragement that we read from our Old Testament lesson today, that encouragement where God tells him, I am with you. I am here to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus, God incarnate, came to do for Jeremiah, for all the holy prophets, and for me and you. And that's why Jesus uses the term must in our gospel lesson today, as in Jesus must go and suffer many things. This is the sentence, though, that made no sense to Peter's earthbound understanding. To Peter, it's the Christ who will make other people suffer. That's not the cross the Christ shall bear. But what Peter and his whole generation didn't quite have a grasp on at the time was that the Christ's suffering and death, far from being defeatist, it will actually be the all-time greatest defeat ever of humanity's all-time greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil the same devil who once spoke through the serpent to the first Adam, and now was speaking through one of our Lord's disciples, Peter. By identifying Peter with Satan, Jesus is taking things to another level, so to speak, with regard to the greater cosmic conflict that's at hand. The Jews... Despite their relentless pursuit of earthly glory and their endeavor to erase hundreds of years of subjugation by one nearby mighty foe or another, be it Egypt, Babylon, or the Greco-Roman Empire, these first century Jews nevertheless miss pursuing an even greater glory, one which was to come only through the Christ. They chose the route to a lesser and a temporal glory. And that became their fixation. Now, blind to the eternal glory, they therefore cannot see Jesus as the compassionate Savior of all nations, that he is. They can't see that it is this greater and eternal glory that comes only through the cross of Christ. It's as St. Paul, who was once himself an earthbound Pharisee, it's how he, the new Paul in Christ, explained to the church there in Corinth. Quote, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. First Corinthians 1. We ourselves today can also easily get caught up, get even fixated on our own geopolitical game-playing strategies and power struggles. But all these two are only temporal squirmishes, The Lord God ultimately raises and topples all earthly kingdoms whenever and however it serves his purposes. And more often he accomplishes all this without consulting you or me. How does he do it? Even powerful presidents and premiers are left out of God's strategic planning room by calling Peter Satan Jesus calls to mind this dramatic saga of good versus evil that's been going on since the dawn of man, since before the fall, and most likely even a time before that as Lucifer was cast down out of heaven with one-third of the angels and became then Satan, whose name means accuser. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, it was right after his baptism and anointing by the Holy Spirit that He was led by that same Holy Spirit out to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And this is where the first Adam in the garden failed. But out there in the desert, this time with Jesus also called the second Adam, this time it was the devil who failed. Concerning this point... Peter easily could have been ignorant of the similarity between what he advised advised Christ and what was the devil's attempt to get Jesus to avoid Calvary's cross. You see, back in Matthew 4, the devil offered Jesus all the glories of the kingdoms of this world right there on the spot, thus bypassing the need for the agony of the cross if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Well, Jesus didn't like it when the devil tried it and uh, that is to divert him from the cross. And what Jesus says next to Peter indicates his continuing disdain for anybody's schemes to derail the cross. Jesus answers Peter's rebuke with a rebuke of his own. Get behind me, Satan, verse 23 records. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man the earthbound concerns. Jesus refused to be lured off his own relentless pursuit of our redemption via the necessity of the cross. He saw what Peter and the rest of Israel in his day could not see, namely that only at the cross bearing the battered and bloody body of our sinless Savior, which was secured to that cross, only that could successfully lay the foundation for a whole new creation, the regeneration and the perfection of a new heaven and a new earth. The resurrection proves it can be done, the bodily resurrection of our Lord, which we confess. On the cross, Jesus confirms it also that it has begun with his own words. When he cries out, it is finished. Christ's ascension, 40 days later, to the right hand of power, now comforts us with the reminder that we need so much as pilgrims passing through an anxious, falling, fallen world. We need that reminder that he still reigns and still rules. That divine reminder from our Heavenly Father says to each one of us today, you are my new creation in Christ through your baptismal union into the Christ's death and also into the Christ's resurrection from the dead. So take heart and comfort one another with these words. We can queue up the the new cartoon. I started the service with a comic strip, and now I want to end my sermon with one as well. And this is a classic, again, from Charles M. Schultz, uh, the Christian cartoonist. Yeah, here it is. Lucy and Linus, brother and sister, looking out on that rainy day. Boy, says Lucy, Look at that rain. What if it floods the entire world? Linus replies, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy smiles with a little relief. You've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus' final statement, sound theology has a way of doing that. And it does. That's the Lord's teaching to us. Everything from his mouth is sound and it abides forever. So now may too you be comforted by that same reminder, that divine promise, the sure hope that comes only through faith in Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.